Good morning. Hopefully you have a lesson in front of you that says, Of God's Decree. And uh, let me encourage you to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and then verse 11, just to orient our minds to the theme in hand this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, and then verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And let us pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your many kindnesses to us, and we thank you that we can begin this day gathering together as a people of God and looking into your pure and precious and holy revelation. I pray that... Uh, it would be honoring to you, it would be pleasing to thee, would pray for the help of the Holy Spirit just in um, interacting with this theme and conveying uh, truths from your holy word. I, I pray it would be uh, profitable for our, our hearts and, and for our souls and truly helpful to our, our thinking. I uh, pray that you would give us insight into the um, impress of your holy revelation and, and might it not only redound to your glory, but it might it... Um, uh, help us in, in living increasingly for your glory and thinking in a way that's commensurate with your holy revelation. So thank you for each one that is here and just a privilege we have to uh, worship together and be together this Lord's Day. So we commit our time to you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you the, the notes, um, some of them are a little, uh, not as quite as uh, clear as I would like it to be. Um, I got quite a few of them printed off until I replaced the toner. So some of them are clearer than others, so hopefully it will all be um, readable for you. So um, so we're, we're still in the, in the theme of, uh, of God's decree, chapter 3 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And just by way of a little review, and then we'll jump into uh, the lesson that you have uh, next to you this morning. But we've noticed, noted um, and this is one of those documents has a close affinity with uh, the, the sovereignty of God and the or the providence of God. And it's one of those that many are opposed to, um, but uh, many of us and many others like us uh, not only embrace these documents, but we, we glory in them. And um, we, we, it's just a blessing to our hearts to know that God is not up there just sort of wringing in his hands, wondering what in the world is going on, but he's in charge, he's in control, and he's, as our text indicated, he's working all things out for the council of his own will. Um, so these are the kinds of doctrines that we are, are persuaded let God be God and it reflects his character um, and they're, they're scriptural, that they have scriptural warrant to them and they're peace producing to the soul. Um, and uh, so um, God is absolutely sovereign. We, we glory in, in these realities. Chapter three um, of the confession is titled Of God's Decree. And we saw that the term is used in the New American Standard Translation a little over 40 times. And just a little bit of review in terms of basic definition, um, the eternal plans of God, uh, whereby before the creation of the world, he determined to bring about everything that happens. So as we noted, the, the, the focus is that he is a planning God. God. Psalm 139 and verse 16 says, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet not, 
not as yet there was not one of them, or Job chapter 14 and verse 5. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with thee, and his limits thou hast set, so that he cannot pass. So man knows not his time, but God clearly does and sets the boundaries. And with regard to the death of the person of Christ, we see the divine sovereignty. Um, it, it is not displaced by human responsibility. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Uh, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan of God and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So again, that's one of those passages where you see the language of determination and planning on the one hand, but also uh, in the purpose of God, but also uh, it doesn't eliminate the free agency of man on the other along the same lines. Acts 4.28, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And just a, a bit more of an expansive definition from Robert Shaw, by the decree of God is meant his, his purpose or determination with respect to future things, or more fully his determinate counsel, whereby from all eternity he, for, he for ordained whatever he should do or would permit to be done in time. A little bit shorter definition from the catechism, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So we see these elements of the fact that God is a planning God, he predetermines, and, and these plans come to fruition through his providential dealings throughout history. And uh, Ephesians 1.11 that we just read, of course, is helpful. Um, also, we have um, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all, not some things, after the counsel of his will. Now, what we observed is that the, the decrees of God have a, a, a comprehensive dimension. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. And then the, the glory of God is the final cause of all his decrees. Uh, Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and in him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Now, because the decrees of God are presented as being comprehensive, all things after the counsel of his own will, because they include the smallest details, and because they are presented as constituting an entire system, which includes nothing at all, uh, objections arise in, in people's minds. And last Lord's Day, we dealt with, with two of those objections. One is how does the doctrine of God's decree, especially its, its comprehensive nature, relate to what could be called fortuitous events, um, that is, events that seem accidental or at least appear to us to be random. And the quick answer to that is they, they seem that way to us, but they are not that way to God. And we looked at two examples that I, I think are helpful. One was the death of, uh, of Ahab, who died in battle because it was determined that he would die in battle, was conveyed by the prophet, yet the man who killed him is said to have shot at random. And we saw the same kind of thing as, as seen in the death of Josiah. That we were informed that God... who would bring him home, um, and then when you uh, when you get a little bit further in the in the narrative, we see that an archer shot him, not knowing who he was, just doing what soldiers do, you know, killing the opponent in battle, and um, so it would appear from that perspective that he was killed at random. Another objection uh, would be that the doctrine of God's decrees will undermine human liberty and undermine free choice on the part of man. And, and one response to that is, and this is not the best response because it's not going to the Bible, but one response is that um, 
we, we just by observing life, we, we see that, that men and women make choices, they reason, they contemplate, they plot, they are responsible, they're responsible for their actions. So it just it commends itself in that sense to our minds. But again, the same scriptures which uh, teach us about the nature of God's decrees, we saw, um, we saw in, uh, in, in the case of, of Absalom's rebellion, Absalom was, uh, was rational, he listened to Ahithophel's counsel, he contemplated what he had to say, he rejected it, he was at liberty, uh, he had liberty of choice, was not removed, he re- responded positively to the counsel of others. Uh, but we also read that he himself, that, that God himself had ordained to thwart the counsel of the of Ahithophel. So that's what we've covered so far with respect to this. And this morning, uh, in, in our time, I want to deal with one more objection that would come to people's minds. And um, I'm not sure how much you've thought about this one or if you've had to interact with, with other people or not. Um, but this would be another objection to God's decrees, which the confession itself addresses um, in, in the first paragraph. And it would be an objection also to the concept of predestination. And that is it makes God the author of sin. If God has preordained or predetermined everything that happened, if the, if the whole, uh, all of his counsel is a system, then it makes him the author of sin. And notice the first paragraph in your notes. It says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass yet so as thereby is god neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein nor is violence offered to the will of the creature nor yet is the liberty of contingence of second causes taken away uh, rather but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power of faithfulness a faithfulness in accomplishing his decree um, I want to quote to you here from Lorraine Bettner, commenting on the, the really profound subject of the problem of evil. Um, he writes, the, the objection may be raised that if God has foreordained the entire course of events in this world, he must be the author of sin. And, and, and the first point here that I would make that I, I, I think needs to be made is that there's an element of mystery that's related to this whole thing, that God created the world and that there is sin in the world, and I think he is helpful here. Uh, He goes on to say, to begin with, we readily admit that the existence of sin in a universe which is under the control of God, which is infinite in his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, is an inscrutable mystery which we in our, our present state of knowledge cannot fully explain, as yet we see through a glass darkly. So there is a mystery connected with the reality of, of sin and evil in the world as it, as it pertains to the fact that God is sovereign and God is ruling and God is reigning. Uh, second, it's obvious from Scripture and observation that God has permitted sin, that God has permitted uh, sin. Bettner writes, uh, a partial explanation is found in the fact that while man is constantly commanded in Scripture not to commit it, he nevertheless is permitted to commit it if he chooses to do so. Um, and then thirdly, it's also clear in the Scriptures that man is he's responsible, um, responsible for his own sin because his motives are culpable or his motives are, are blameworthy. And in the, in the notes here, I have one section of Scripture that I think is helpful to show that man is responsible for his own sin. It's from Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 5. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, 
and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Now then verse 10, then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but lifts up his, his eyes to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. And the only point I want to make here is man is responsible. He's presented as being responsible for his own sins. Um, and then Bettner writes, but while God permits sin, his connection with it is purely negative. And it is the abominable thing which he hates with perfect hatred, with uh, which the, the motive which God has in permitting it and the motive which man has in committing it are radically different. And then an example that you're familiar with, but nevertheless I think is, is helpful, is from Genesis chapter 50 in verses 15 and especially leading up to verse 20. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And then verse 20, And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Very helpful verse in this whole discussion of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Notice the text doesn't say that God allowed it for, that God... Um, uh, God allowed it for good, but he meant it for good. So you see the intimate connection between the two. Um, furthermore, every person's conscience, after he has committed a sin, tells him that he alone is responsible and that he, he need not have committed it if he had not voluntarily chosen to do so. I thought that was very helpful. A couple of examples from Scripture, Psalm 51.3. Uh, this is David's confession I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight. So thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. And then another example of that would be Luke 15, 17. But, but here the, the point I'm making is, is David, he, his conscience bothers him. He knows he's responsible. He's, at this point, he's not passing the buck. He's just confessing his sin. He understands that he's responsible for it. Luke 15, 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I have sinned against heaven in your sight. Well, then, fourthly, it's also clear 
that the source of sin is man's own heart. It comes from man's own heart, according to Holy Scripture, and, and not from God. And a helpful text here is Matthew 15, 17 and following. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And Robert Raymond, just kind of a, a snippet from his systematic theology, he wrote, Whatever sinfulness ensues proceeds only from men and angels and not from God. That would be fallen angels, but not from God. A little bit more extended here from B.B. Uh, Warfield. He wrote that anything good or evil occurs in God's universe finds its account in his positive ordering and active concurrence. And I thought this next sentence was, was helpful. While the moral quality of the deed considered in itself is rooted in the moral character of the subordinate agent, that would be the person doing it, acting in the circumstances and under the, the motive, uh, the motives operative in each instance. So you can read the rest of that uh, at your own leisure. So in terms of meaning, as, as Bettner puts it, God is never the efficient cause in the production of sin, uh, not, not the immediate cause of sin. So with those um, kind of introductory thoughts uh, in mind, um, I, in the time remaining, I just want to kind of along the same line here, I give you some reasons why God is not the author of sin. Some reasons why God is not the author of sin. And the first one is just a direct quote from Sam Waldron. Uh, he writes, God is not the author of sin because he does not by his own immediate causation bring it to pass. It's the responsibility of second causes who willingly engage in it. Uh, number two, uh, his conduct or his activity precludes the idea that he could ever be the author of sin. One text, James chapter 1 and verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So his, content, his, his conduct precludes that he could be the author of sin. Then thirdly, his, his character. His character. First uh, John uh, 1 5, at least a part of it says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. John Stott comments of the statements about the essential being of God. None is more comprehensive than God is light. It is his nature to reveal himself as it is the property of light to shine. And the revelation is, is perfect purity and unutterable majesty. And I think what's especially powerful here is this connection with the words, in him there is no darkness at all. Um, I. Howard Marshall writes, he's thinking in, in ethical terms, that there is no evil at all resident in the being of God or the person of God. Uh, Robert Candlish wrote, I don't think this is in your notes, um, he connects it with John chapter 1 and verse 5, the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehend it not, comprehends it not. And then F.F. F. Bruce, which is... Um, in your notes, um, in him there is nothing that is unholy or unrighteous, evil or false. Habakkuk 1.13, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. And I think in this respect here, the force of Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5 is just is very powerful. Um, in the year of King Messiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So the very, very character of God precludes the idea that he could be author of sin, especially his holiness is such a profound uh, perfection, as we've, as we've said before. You could argue that this is his fundamental or primary perfection because those who see him clearly, they seem to be saying over and over again that God is holy. It's what stands out about his character. Robert Shaw wrote, the holiness of God is the perfect rectitude, right? That, that's the idea of righteousness as a principle or practice of his nature, whereby he is absolutely free from all moral impurity. And in all that he does, acts, oh, excuse me, in all that he does, acts like himself. And for the advancement of his own honor, delighting in what accords with and abhorring what is contrary to his nature and will. And Kyle and Daly's, the German commentators, along the same lines, holiness is the sublime and incomparable majesty of God, exalted above all the imperfections and blemishes of the finite creature. God is in himself the Holy One, that is, the separate one, beyond or above the, the world, true light, spotless purity, the perfect one. The design of all the work of God is that his holiness should become universally manifest, or what is the same thing, that his glory should become the fullness of the whole earth and just as kind of a kind of an aside here um, we, we could say you know in this connection uh, just the moral directives um, which govern are, are supposed to govern the kind of affections that, that we as believers are have to ha have to have um, or should have, they militate very strongly against the idea that God himself could be the author of sin. Like uh, Romans 12, 9, we are to abhor that which is evil and to cling to that which is good. That's God's will for you and I. We are to abhor that which is evil, to cling that which is good. That's a moral directive, and, and, and that must come from the character of a being who is infinitely holy, and it does. Psalm 109, 104, from thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Or Psalm 119, 163, I, I hate and abhor lying, but I love thy law. And so what, what sort of a being would, would it be who conveys these aspirations to his people? Well, then fourthly, his reaction to sin, his reaction to sin militates against the idea that he could be the author of sin. And one example, and others might come to your mind, who would be Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, his reaction to sin. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will, this is his reaction, at least part of it. I'll blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made him. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then along the same lines, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I think what especially makes the words powerful in Genesis chapter 6 um, in this connection is that, that God is presented um, as reacting here not against just overt displays of evil like he does in Sodom. You have, you have there these overt clear displays of evil, 
But here it's what is in man's heart, just the imagination of his heart is perpetually evil. And that's what he is reacting against or responding against. So it doesn't make sense that God would be the author or the source of that which is the object of his wrath and displeasure. And then, uh, fifthly, from the nature of sin itself, from the nature of sin itself, A.A. Hodge says, which is, as to its essence, a lack of conformity to law and disobedience to the lawgiver. So sin, it's lawlessness, and law is a display of God's character. Law is the, the transcript of God's character. Sin is a violation of that law, which is simply an emanation of the, the character or the being of God. So it would seem extremely incongruous for God, who's always consistent with himself, to be the source of that which is a violation of his own character. And then number six, to quote Hodge again, from the nature of man, who is a responsible agent, who originates his own acts, the scriptures always attribute to divine grace the good actions and to the evil heart the sinful actions of men. So man, not God, is presented in the scriptures as being responsible for his own actions. And let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you this morning for the time together. And I, I pray these considerations about the, the reality of your decrees and the nature of your decrees and these possible objections that men and women might raise against them, I pray, would be helpful to our own thinking process. I, I pray the effect, it would deepen our, our love for thee, our faith in thee, our trust in thee, our appreciation of thy character. We do pray that you would cause us to be those who glory increasingly in the infinite, incomparable holiness and beauty and purity and excellency of your being. And thank you for the time this morning. I pray that our fellowship would be precious and encouraging and, and sweet and, and might this time prepare our souls for, for worship this Lord's Day. So continue to guide us and direct us by your precious spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.